Well, good morning. Thanks for tuning in again to our weekly broadcast, and it's a, it's a delight to serve you in this way. Um, this week, we're studying Psalm 25, and if you remember from last week, Psalm 24 um, talked about how great the Creator King is. Who is this King of glory, this King um, great and powerful, mighty in battle? And those who can be in his presence are those who have a clean hand, a pure heart, clean hands, a pure heart, uh, who don't lift their soul to another and or to a vain idol, and who don't bear false witness. And uh, Psalm 25, the next psalm, is kind of raises the same question as if I did raise my soul to God, is it a safe risk? Is it is it worth doing? It's a it's probably the, if not the most important decision we ever make in our lives as to who we lift our soul to. And so, is Jesus trustworthy and uh, able to take our soul? Is he a good soul manager? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is trustworthy. And this Psalm 25 is interesting in a number of ways. First of all, it is a, an acrostic poem in the sense that every verse in the Hebrew, every original, they don't have verse numbers, but every stanza, every uh, line or sentence, I guess you could say, starts with uh, the, the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat, that kind of thing, only it's with the Hebrew alphabet. And, and so there's uh, a lot of intentionality and structure in the poem, and it's kind of a a list. It repeats itself in some ways, but often in Hebrew poetry, when we see repetition, we're supposed to pay attention because it's an emphasis, and also because sometimes in Hebrew parallelism, we say something one way and then say it another, and it's like turning a diamond and seeing it from a little different perspective and seeing some other beautiful facets. And so um, we'll talk about those in detail as we work through it. But basically today, in the Psalm 25, I found 10 reasons, 10 reasons why we can trust Jesus to take our soul. And so I'm going to read the Psalm in its entirety, and then we'll work through the 10 that I found, and then that would be it. <clears throat> so starting at Psalm 25, verse 1, In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. This phrase, I put my trust, is the most recent translation, but earlier translations and the actual Hebrew is the same phrase from Hebrew, um, Psalm 24, but I lift up my soul. So really this is in you, Lord, my God, I lift up my soul. I, I'm going to trust you with myself. I'm going to lift myself up to you. And then in verse two, he says, I trust in you. And that's actually the word trust. And so um, even though the NIV that I'm using says in you, I put my trust. It's really in you, I lift up my soul, and then I trust in you. So verse two, I trust in you. Do not, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. 
He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for he only, for only he will release my feet from the snare. <clears throat> Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Let's pray as we ask God to help us figure this out. Father, we thank you for this good word. We're reminded of how good Jesus is, how good you are as our Savior, your loving kindness, and, and that even though we're aware of our sins and the sins of our youth, we will not be put to shame. You will, you will vindicate us, you forgive us, you, you bring us into good places, and you even confide in us and tell us your secrets. Help us to trust you. Help us to give our lives to you wholly. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have 10 reasons why it's good to give your soul to Jesus, to give your soul to this God, this great Savior, to Yahweh. And so the first one is, God will not let me be ashamed. If you look again at verse 1, And you, Lord my God, I lift up my soul. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And so the, the idea here is that when we, when we put our hope in God, when we trust him with our soul, we can be confident that we won't be ashamed of that decision. There's uh, multiple ways to view this. One of them is just the shame of, of um, other people mocking us or that it's the wrong decision. I, I don't want to get burnt. There's a, when you look at Thomas the apostle, and he, um, he expected Jesus to be the Messiah. And then, of course, Jesus died on the cross. And, and then there was stories about him raising from the dead. But Thomas was skeptical, and he didn't see Jesus himself. And the others told him that we've seen the Lord. And, and Thomas says, no way, I'm not going to get burnt again. Uh, he didn't say it that way, but that's the implication. He said, unless I see these with my own eyes, unless I see the testimony of his scars in his hand, I'm not going to believe. And there's a, a way to think about Thomas as just being a person who didn't want to be ashamed again. He had poured his whole life into trusting Jesus. And yet he, um, he felt like he had been burnt. And of course, we know the story how Jesus appeared again to the apostles and, and, uh, and Thomas was there. And it was important for Thomas to see him because Thomas was going to be an apostle. But Jesus also rebukes him and says, it's, it's okay, you, you can believe in me without seeing. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. But you need to see because you're going to be one of the apostles. 
And uh, Thomas made the great confession, my Lord and my God, the greatest confession ever. But the point is, is that sometimes we're afraid to lift up our soul to something because we're going to look stupid or we're going to look like we wasted our life or we're going to be ashamed. So part of that shame term is that idea of not, of not getting embarrassed by our, our religious decision, maybe the way other people would describe it. But there's another component to shame, of course, and that's the shame we experience from our own sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they realized that they were naked, they were ashamed of what they had done and they hid themselves and they did not want to be exposed. And, and there's something about when we give our soul to a person, when we give our soul to God, we're, we're showing him everything. And he knows everything about us already, but for us to realize that he knows us intimately and deeply in all of our thoughts, it's easy to feel ashamed because of the evil things we've done. And so the psalmist says, don't let me be put to shame. Don't let me be like the, those who are wicked who should be uh, ashamed of their wickedness. It's one of the signs of a terrible sinner is that they lose the ability to be shamed. Uh, the Proverbs describe the prostitute whose face is, is strong like a flint. She's never, uh, she has an impudent face. She's never ashamed of her actions anymore. Her, she's so hardened in her sins. And so we don't want to be like that, of course, but we don't want to be ashamed. And God promises that we won't be ashamed. So the first major point here is that God will not let me be ashamed. He can be trusted with that. The second reason that I found it's good to uh, give our soul to Jesus, to God, is that God will teach me his ways. So the second one is God will teach me his ways. In verse 4, I can see it here, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. The first idea we need to catch here is that God's ways are different than our ways. And as a natural person, I think that the world should go a certain way. I think I should get um, adoration for my accomplishments, that I should be praised, that I should not ever have to suffer. And so I have a lot of preconceived notions about the ways things should be. <clears throat> the Bible says that um, there is a way that seems right to a man, to a human being. There is a way that seems right, but the end therein is the, uh, the end thereof is the way of death that our ways are not the Lord's ways. And we need to understand that he sees things from a different perspective and he sees things a different way. And so one of the really great benefits of giving my soul to God, my giving my soul to Jesus, is he will show me his ways and I'll start to understand the way he works and how he works in history and in person's lives and the mysterious things that he does. Look also down in verse 8. Again, the psalmist repeats and says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. And so God promises to give us instruction. I need to know how to live. And God wants me to know. And he will teach me his ways. This is not uh, me in an independent study having to force it all and, and, and struggle and struggle. It's God himself is my teacher. And his, he's invested in making me learn. I'm reminded of the New Testament. It says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. will carry it on to the day of Christ's completion. So Jesus is invested in me learning his ways. The Holy Spirit wants me to be conformed to Jesus' ways, to his image. And God is involved in all of that. And so it's great to know that he's going to invest the time to make me learn his ways. 
The third thing that I see here is that God will give me his love. That I can be assured that if I give my soul to Jesus, he will give me his love. Actually, we love because he first loved us. It's kind of ironic to even think that we give to him and then he loves us back. It's the other way around. He already sets his love on us. But when we trust him and give him ourselves, we experience his love. Look at verse 16. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. And do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. You know, when I love someone, and uh, my wife, for example, I love her so much. And, and then I, I can probably think of, if I try really hard, I can probably think of some th mistakes she's made over the 37 years we've been married. So I, let me think of one, maybe. I could try to think of one. You know, that's not a big deal to me because my love covers over the multitude of sins. You see, my love for her is so great that even a failing on her part is not even worth remembering. Actually, I, I'd have a hard time thinking of a good one in the first place. But how much more so God, when he's paid for our sins and we've had our sins washed away and taken as far as the east is from the west, and the psalmist says, do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. I, I lament and feel bad about my sins. It's awful. But he doesn't remember them. And we can ask him, and to, and to remember us according to his love. You promised that you would love me and love me instead of punish me. And that's what God does, because he is good. Look at verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. And so again, God is loving towards us, and he will give me his love. Excuse me a minute. <clears throat> um, we've seen this verse 10 come up a couple of times already with this little phrase, towards those who keep the demands of his covenant. And I'm just going to say up front here that I'm not able to keep the demands of the covenant, but God did for me. Jesus already kept the covenant, and everything that Jesus did belongs to me. God sees me as if I have done all of the things that Jesus did and lived a perfect life. And so I was able to keep the demands of his covenant. The Bible calls this, this covenant mercy, this thing, the Hebrew word hesed. It's God's faithfulness, and he is always faithful to his promise. He makes us lovely. He doesn't love me because I'm lovable. It's the other way around. I'm lovable because he loves me, and he makes me um, attractive to him. The fourth thing I see is that God indeed will forgive my sin. God will forgive my sin. And again, verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways, Verse 11, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Verse 18, look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. And so several times in the psalm, he repeats this theme is that I'm a, a terrible sinner and it's a sad thing. I, uh, I can lament my sin, but I need to understand that God does forgive my sin and I'm clean in him and he loves me anyway. And so I don't need to fear because he is faithful and loves me in my sin and forgives my sin. The fifth thing I see is that God will bring me the good. In Hebrew, it's the word tov. So in verse 12, we say, who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in his ways. They should choose in the ways they should choose. And he will spend, or they, those persons who God loves, who give their soul to God, verse 13, they will spend their days in prosperity, is how it's translated. 
But that word prosperity is the Hebrew word tov. It's, it's in the good. And their descendants will inherit the land. And so God will bring me good benefits. It will be good. Do you realize that when we get to heaven, no matter how awful and difficult our sufferings were on this earth, that we will look back on everything God has done and said, God, you are very good. You have done it all well. We don't lose. If you remember last week, I talked about how when I was flying my airplane, I realized that I had given my soul to another. I was pursuing a vain thing and it was hollow and, and, and sad. And um, when God, when we give our soul to God like this, it's not like we lose everything that we delight in. It's that our delight is in Jesus first. And then Jesus gives it back to us and gives us the good. And I've had so many great experiences and so many blessings. And, and even flying an airplane is a blast when God is in it. And so it's an okay thing to have hobbies and affections. It's just that they can't be our number one. And when we put Jesus first, then he gives us all things good and gives us the ability to enjoy these things. Um, Ecclesiastes talks about what a great blessing it is for a man to enjoy his work and enjoy the wife of his youth and enjoy his days. He, he'll, be, he'll not be able to be saddened because he's distracted by how good God has been to him all the way through. And so our lives are redeemed and expanding and thriving. Just like Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, it's not that you just stay sad. It's you get it. You get it all. You get life to the full. You'll find yourself. You'll be, find your true self. You'll be the version of yourself you always wanted to be. More, th more than that, you'll be the version of yourself that God is making you into being. And you won't believe how great it is to have the good. Now, I don't think that that means we never suffer or that we're, there's never difficulty. As a matter of fact, if anything, we start to see the good even in the suffering. And so God is at work. He's work at, in Romans 8, 20, he's at work in all things for the good of those who love him. So he's going to work out his good and perfect plan. Well, the sixth thing I see is a reason that we can trust Jesus, trust God, is in verse 14, God will confide in me. God will confide in me. Look at verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. What an exciting thought. You know, it's one thing to know a, a very powerful or, or a famous person, maybe the president of a large company and you know he's a friend of yours and stuff but man it really is cool if they would spend that time and confide in you and say do you know what i'm really trying to do here or did you notice what i was trying to do over there or you know i'm what I, the reason i'm i'm cutting back on this product line is so that we can expand in this product line and say oh man that's a really good idea how much greater is it to know that god's own spirit is in your spirit and he bears witness with you that you're the son of God and you're the daughter of God that you belong to him and he confides in us he helps us understand even he even helps us understand things that we don't understand we even pray through the spirit with groanings we can't understand but the point is is that it's not that there's a secret you can't know it's that God trusts you and confides in you and he teaches you his ways and so there's things that believers, close believers, mature believers, there's things that we understand about following Jesus that, that God has confided in us. He's our friend. What an exciting thing to, to be like Abraham, who God called his friend. And he told him, remember, he told Abraham, hey, shall I tell Abraham what we're going to do? And he tells Abraham about all the things that are going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham prays to God on his behalf. 
how cool it is that God loves us enough to confide in us. He's not just our great creator. He's our intimate savior and friend, and so he confides in us. The seventh reason it's good to trust Jesus, to trust God, is that God will release me from the snare. The next verse there, verse 15, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. We all know what it's like to struggle with besetting sins or bad habits, things that have had a grip on our lives for a long, long time. And we need extra help. And there isn't a formula or a trick, but there is a God who can rescue us from the snare. And when God confides in us and spends his time with us, he's invested in giving us victory over besetting sins. And he can release us from the snare. And I, I think it's pretty clear here that my eyes are ever on the Lord. The way that I can be escaping from the snare is to take my eyes off of this sin in my life, this bad habit, and put them on Jesus. The Hebrews says, set your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one to emulate. And when I think about what he's done for me and his work on the cross, and I focus on Jesus, he gives me the power to, be, to escape from the snare, to overcome those besetting sins. Praise God that he does that for his believers. The eighth reason that it's a good idea and safe to give our soul to Jesus is God will get me through suffering. And I don't even think that that's a very good way to say it because he does more than get us through suffering. We're, we're more than conquerors, really. We are going to realize that the suffering was worth it and that the, uh, the character that's built by suffering is worth the sacrifice and the difficulties. And the New Testament tells us that our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the glory of what God is doing in our lives. But look at the psalmist here in verse 16. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. So that's one kind of suffering, is loneliness and, and sad of heart. In verse 17, Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Those, those are the things that spin around and around and around and we can't get out of them and we're worried about them and they, they torment us and Oh man, I, I, wish, I wish I didn't uh, dream as the way I do so often, but a lot of times I'll, um, I'll get caught in some dream that has something to do with programming a computer and I can't get it to work. And I'll roll back and forth, back and forth, like trying to solve this hopeless problem. And thankfully, those are just dreams, right? But sometimes people, in, and in my own life too, I've experienced anguish and it, it, it burdens us, it burns us up. And then verse 18, look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. I, I know I'm responsible sometimes for the afflictions that happen to me. And then verse 19, see how numerous are my enemies and fiercely they hate me. So we, the psalmist prays to God and says, see how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Other people really hate me for out, without cause. The Lord Jesus certainly knows what that's like to be hated without cause. And so this is just a list of different kinds of sufferings and and God gets us through the hard times. Our suffering is not without purpose. It's, it's to glorify him. And he produces character in us. And we can pray to him. And, and he teaches us what matters. I heard someone say not long ago that if, if someone reaches the point of despair, where they say, my life is meaningless now. It's just, it's just too bad. My life is meaningless. Whatever it was that was taken away from you when you feel like life is meaningless, 
that thing was an idol. That was lifting your heart up to something else. Say, um, say an Olympic athlete tried so hard to get a gold medal and finally they get it and now their life doesn't have a purpose anymore and they say, it's meaningless, I don't have anything to pursue, I've already done all I can do. You see, that, that could have been an idol for them and they could have wanted that. Or you lose a job or, or you get a job and you have all the things you want and you turn around and you're still hollow inside and even with all the money you get, you still feel hollow on the inside. You see, whenever we give our soul to another, to some empty thing, some empty idol, we, we are giving ourselves to a meaningless thing and, and it leads to our own lives feeling meaningless. But if we give our life to Jesus, even in sufferings, he goes with us through the sufferings and he will be all that we need. It's a great evidence that we love Jesus, that we want him more than we want our comforts. It's like Job, right? Job, like I said last week, Job was able to, to love God for himself, not for all the good things that God gave to him. And so God's grace is sufficient. He'll get me through the suffering. The ninth reason it's good to trust in Jesus is God will guard me from my enemies. Those enemies that we just mentioned here, that see how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. And then he says in verse 20, guard my life and rescue me and do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. And so when you have an enemy, it could be the, the, an enemy of your neighbor, it could be an enemy of a relative, it could be an enemy of our souls, the Satan himself, it could be um, our own selves, as sometimes our selfish desires are our enemy, the world is our enemy, and, and death is certainly an enemy that's been overcome by God and conquered. And so all of these, these enemies, they, we ask God, when we give our hearts to God, the psalmist says, you will not let me be put to shame in the presence of my enemy. Someday, some way, Jesus will get the vindication and it'll be worth it. And God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And so that's a great reward and blessing. And then the last thing, the 10th thing, and this is not the least for sure, in verse 21, the 10th thing that God will give us is God will give me integrity. He will give me integrity. Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope, Lord, is in you. I don't know about you, but there's not a whole lot of things that I value more than the idea of my own integrity. I know I'm not perfect and, and those close to me could probably find a number of inconsistencies, but man, I really try to live a life of integrity. The opposite of integrity would be disintegrity, right? Disintegrated. Everything's falling apart and you say one thing and you do another and you lie. But to, but to have integrity of soul, it's like Job said, I, he, he, you know, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Why are you still holding on to your integrity? Why are you still uh, acting like it matters? Why do you act like it still makes sense? And I... I I'm, I'm, I'm with Job, man. I really want it to make sense. And I appreciate it so much to know that God is a God of integrity. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't play games. It's not nonsense. It's personal and meaningful and it's got a purpose and a plan and it's going somewhere. It's not just a big accident or a show. It's not by chance. And so God's integrity 
is something that the psalmist can say, he asked for his own integrity. May integrity and uprightness protect me. I want to be protected by the successful manifestation of Jesus' image in me, that I'm going to grow spiritually and I'm going to conquer sin and it can protect me. It's really true. When you have a clean heart, the enemy's temptations are not as sweet. But when we've sinned or fallen away or fooled around with something we shouldn't, it's easier for us to fall away farther because our own integrity doesn't protect us. And uh, the Bible says that a man who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. The walls are disintegrated. There's nothing stopping anybody and anything from coming in and going out. And so it is with a person who lacks self-control. They have no control of what's going in and what's going out. But when we give our lives to Jesus and the Holy Spirit instructs us in his ways and we learn all that God's doing and he confides in us his ways and we learn about him more and more and we know our sins are forgiven, he can give us an integrity. He can give us righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then a promise, for they will be filled. You can be substantially healed from your sin. I can be filled with righteousness by God's grace alone. And because of that righteousness, I have integrity and uprightness, and it protects me. Even from false accusation, my integrity and uprightness can protect me. And so I can be consistent, and I can accept myself in Jesus. So, hey, there's just a list of 10 really cool things that I found in this psalm, and I'm sure you could find even more if you spent the time looking. But it's a great thing to know Jesus, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus is willing and able to save our souls and to take care of our souls. God, we do lift our soul up to you. We do trust you. We give you our lives because we know that it's the only, you are the only person that can be trusted. You are the only person who's able. You're the only person who loves us and who is willing to make us whole, and to forgive our sins and to fill us with integrity. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.